BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Hey, it's Matt, and I'm here in the studio with Austin, and we're excited to bring you another business episode of The Science of Success. We just launched season two of our business episodes. If you want to learn more about what these are and why we're doing them, be sure to check out the season two teaser that we recently released. And with that, Austin, Tell us a little bit about how these episodes are different than a traditional Science of Success episode. Yeah. So it's important to know that you're still going to get all the great content you've come to know and love from the Science of Success every Thursday. These are bonus episodes with added value, specifically centered around business. We've interviewed some true titans of business in multiple industries from multiple walks of life. And what we're going to focus on are the habits, routines, and mindsets that made them the successful titans they are today. That said, these are lessons, routines, stories, best practices that anyone can learn from and apply to their life. You don't have to be a business owner. You can be an employee. You can be a student. Or you can, of course, be a business owner. But come check them out. You're going to come away with a ton of valuable takeaways. But we do have a bit of a business focus on these specific business episodes in Season 2. With that, let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this wide-spanning conversation, we discuss the founding of a multi-billion dollar public company, the inside baseball of what it takes to build a truly massive business, and we dig into some of the biggest questions of life, including how do we deal with the problem of evil and how do we merge science and spirituality. On top of that, My co-host Austin will be joining us for this interview. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, Just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. 
That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared how to ask for what you want, get the help you need to succeed, and looked at the evidence-based lessons for how you can get more of what you want in your life with our previous guests, Dr. Wayne Baker and Larry Freed. Our guest today will be Scott Shea. He co-founded Signature Bank of New York, which has been named one of the best banks in New York for private business owners. He's the author of the best-selling and critically acclaimed books, Getting Our Groove Back, and most recently, In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. Scott gives frequent talks around the country and has worked with many media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and many more. Scott, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here with you today, Matt. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. You have a fascinating journey and some really good perspectives on some very timely questions. I want to start out with your own journey, your own experience. Tell me about the founding of Signature Bank and how your career led you to that point. Well, it's always a journey. And you have to be prepared with everything that you've got from behind you. So I started out, I'm an unlikely person to have founded a bank. I started out, I'm the first person on either side of my family to have attended college. But I made my way to Wall Street. I worked for Solomon Brothers. And then I joined Lou Ranieri in the private equity world. During the 90s, I kept having this feeling that the banks in New York, at least, had grossly overconsolidated. You know, you used to have J.P. Morgan, Chase, Chemical, Manny Haney, Trust Company of Westchester, Long Island Trust, Greater New York Bank, Greater New York Savings Bank. And it goes on and on. About 19 banks today are part of J.P. Morgan Chase. And that's not a knock against them. But I quickly came to realize that Big banks were awfully good at mass market because they have the economies of scale to have vast retail chains. And they were good at dealing with companies like Verizon and IBM and PepsiCo. But I thought there was this huge niche, more than a niche, of companies in the middle who really needed specialized banking. So I had this crazy idea to start a new bank. I wanted to start a new bank because I didn't want to be beholden to the culture of any existing organization. And I managed to persuade two people who I knew who thought I was literally crazy to try to start a new bank. They thought I was just, you know, they humored me. They liked me, so they humored me. But ultimately, I convinced them. And so we started our bank, Signature Bank, May 1st, 2001, with no deposits, no clients, no nothing. We got $42.5 million in capital from Bank of Pauline. And now, 18 and a half years later, we are a $50 billion bank. We broke even after 21 months. We went public after 34 months. And, you know, uh, we did it all without any acquisition. So every client of Signature Bank came in the bank because they wanted to. We didn't acquire any clients, as it were. We didn't acquire any banks and say, oh, you were a bank of Bank X, so now you're our client. So it's been an amazing journey. And uh, oh, by the way, we had a financial crisis in the middle for the entire United States. Signature, I should say, never had a financial crisis. We're the only bank in the United States 
above $4 billion that did not have a single down year during the whole mortgage mess. So fascinating. There's a number of questions I have around that. Just starting out, how did you think about, you had some experience, Wall Street, private equity, et cetera, but not necessarily experience owning, operating, running a bank. How did you think about that lack of experience or lack of expertise? And did you view that as a, a hindrance or did you view that as an advantage? And how did you solve that question? So the most important thing to me is having partners who do things better than you ever could in the areas that you are less experienced. I would not have tried to start this bank but for working with John Tamberlane and Joe DiPaolo, who are my partners and you know very close friends, because I knew there was stuff I didn't know. And I knew that they could do those areas better. For example, I did you know, feel pretty good that I was able to deal with the asset liability management. I have a pretty strong credit background. I'm chairman of our credit committee. And I know a lot of people, so you know I could help bring in clients. But I knew I didn't know how to run the operations, the back office operations of the bank, to deal with all of the huge number of front office operation issues of a bank. So if I hadn't found Joe and John, there wouldn't be a signature bank today. You have to know what you don't know. And if you don't, if you can't identify what you don't know, you're in trouble before you begin. How did you think about finding your two partners? Did you know them from your network? Did you seek them out? Did you poach them from competitors? So I knew them from my network in this way. I was a client of Republic Bank of New York, and I was in the private equity world. You know, I did know a lot of bankers, and I thought about who the best ones would be to join in doing this. And I, I have to tell you, in 1999, I was looking at my Bloomberg in the morning, and I saw that HSBC was buying Republic Bank of New York. So I knew Joe and John worked there, and I knew them well enough. They weren't close friends. I mean, I knew them from the business world, but I knew well enough at that time that they would be unhappy working for a multinational bank. I just, I knew that. I was sure of that. And I remember thinking, boy, this is a great day. I'm going to get on the phone and call them. And um, I did make contact with them through someone else I knew, actually. I thought that was a better way, a more discreet way. And I said, let's have breakfast. And we did. And I explained that I thought we should start a new bank. And uh, they did think I was a little crazy. And I explained why. And then we got together again, and they still thought I was crazy. By the third or fourth time, they didn't think I was crazy anymore. And not only that, they were really, really interested. So my view, though, is your partners have to be the right partners. Because you can recover from almost anything in business except for having the wrong partners. If you get the wrong partners, it's unrecoverable. It's the end of whatever you're trying to do in that venture. You have to start over. And so that's why, to me, having the right partners was so important. And as we interviewed the first people who joined us, because once we started with the, once we had three, we quickly became five. And then we were relying on all of our networks for hiring other people. But even though we did that, we met so much with the folks who we brought on board because I, you know, I knew and we knew that every single hire 
was absolutely critical. And, you know, I think people probably thought we were interviewing them for marriage or something or for brother-in-law because we spent so much time and sister-in-law, should I say, brother and sister-in-law. We spent so much time in those early days making sure that everybody was unanimous, that they could work with everybody who came on board. That's a great piece of advice. I love that quote about being able to recover from almost anything except for the wrong partners. Really, really insightful. I'm curious, you talked about building the early team. How did you think about capitalizing the business initially? Did you raise capital? How did you, and if so, how did you do that? That's actually a great question because I thought a lot about that and I don't get that question very often. So I was in the private equity world and I thought, I more than thought, I was highly confident to use that hackneyed phrase that we could raise good private equity and that indeed if we did so, that the founders could have a greater share in the ownership. But if you remember back in those days, FDIC insurance only went to $100,000. It goes to two fifty dollars now, but it went to 100000 And we were going to start, we were a small bank starting out with no clients. So our first months, for example, we lost over $2 million a month. I mean, we had no revenue. So we were, you know, all of this operational cost was money out the door until we could get in deposits and break even, which we did very fast, but there was no guarantee we were going to be able to do that. So I thought and we thought that we needed a strong backer so that when we went to middle market clients, because most middle market clients had virtually all of them would deposit more than 100000 and many of them would deposit more than a million. So they needed to have the sense that we were a stable bank or that we had stable back. And that's why I approached in this case, I was on the board of Bank Pauline, and Bank of Pauline, after thinking and listening to us, agreed to put in that first $42.5 million. They subsequently put in another $150 million as we were growing. And they came in, brought it like six, $7 a share. And they exited, by the way, less than five years later. And we are now an independent public bank. And nobody would care at that point because we had our own access to capital. We were profitable, et cetera. But we turned down the ability to have a bigger ownership slice, a far bigger ownership slice, and started life as 100% owned by Bank of Paul Lane in order to make sure that the bank thrived. And with 2020 hindsight, I still think we would have made it had we been had private equity ownership. But there is no way. We would have been a $50 billion bank, and I don't think there's any way we would have been a $25 billion bank today had we not been long-term greedy for the organization, as opposed to try to figure out how to have the biggest slug of ownership in the shortest period of time. Really interesting decision calculus. And so did you view them as primarily essentially a strategic investor? And how did that relationship come about? Was that somebody in your network? Did you approach them cold? And the reason I'm asking is, you know, especially for somebody who's listening to think about raising money, the I don't think most people would go, hey, I'm going to start a business. And then they raise $42 million on their first slug. So I'm curious how to translate some of those lessons into people's experience who may not have had the network of the connections that you have. Well, first of all, it's important to expand your network as far as you can. 
because in a way it is all about network and it's frequently not all about who you know but people who the people you know know and you know the one step removed is huge and in this case though it was a direct contact i was on the board of bank of Poiling, which i had been appointed through my experience in private equity and so i did have the direct relationship to make the s directly and when you think about it it just as you said it's not every day that people invest that any bank or anyone invests 42 and a half million dollars in a startup that's a lot even today and this is 19 years ago totally makes sense what do you think gave them the confidence to make that big investment in you and, and the firm, especially when you still had either few or even no clients? Well, that's also a great question. So I think they had confidence in the team. They didn't say yes immediately. I don't want to, I mean, there was a long courtship period. They also would have greatly preferred had we bought a bank. I mean, they spent a lot of time trying to convince me Yes, let us back you. We will back you. But buy a bank, let us invest in something that is at least making some money and then build it from there. And this was a great, you know, I want to say impediment, but it was certainly a, a large source of discussion because I definitely didn't want to go that route. And they did. And it took a lot of convincing on my part in this case. And I think even at the end, they weren't so sure about not going the route of buying another bank, but we had spent enough time and it showed them enough about how we would execute our plan. And we did have the right people. Between Joe, John, and myself, we did have all of the expertise that we needed. I mean, not that you ever have all that you need, but we had the majors plugged and the people who we brought on. They had the other areas plugged. And given that Bank of Pauline were bankers, they knew that we weren't blowing smoke at them. I mean, we couldn't blow smoke at them. They knew enough that, you know, you could ask, and they did ask the fifth order question. And we could still answer it and say, this is what we're going to do. And that gave them comfort, I think. I mean, we, by the end, I think they thought we had, and, and you've talked about this in, the, in, in some of the other podcasts, I think we've, in your podcast, I mean, they understood that we had real authority, not any kind of psychological authority, but really we knew what we were talking about. We had a serious plan. And I think they came to the conclusion, you know, not too long later that we were right because they could have pulled the plug at any point. I mean, they could have said, stop growing. But they put another $150 million in the bank. Scott, I'm curious. This is Austin jumping in here. <laughs> How are we doing? This has been a fascinating conversation so far. And I'm curious, too, you know, how do you look at leadership and then finding leaders that are a fit for your organization? So you mentioned, you know, in the initial hiring periods, it was like interviewing a family member. Someone was going to become a family member. And, you know, now scaling up to over a thousand employees it's obviously critical that you have you know, the right leaders in the right seats and the right locations managing these things to ensure culture and leaderships maintained. So how do you look at finding leaders in your organization or people you want to bring into your life? And, and a dovetail of that would be, you know, what essential qualities in leadership do you find are most commonly overlooked by others? Well, I would say this. 
First of all, I'm a big proponent that leadership is caught, not taught. There's lots of classes in it, but surrounding yourself with good people who you can learn from, I think is the best way to learn leadership. And then recognizing that if you are a leader, other people are watching you very closely and they're taking their cues from you. And I think when I talk to someone who I'm hoping will be a, a, one of the leaders in their business, I'm looking for real authenticity. I'm looking for someone who I think I you know would be comfortable with being in a foxhole with, who I think would have my back and I would want to have their back. And that's a pretty difficult to quantify characteristic. And that's why I think you have to spend so much time with people if you're really going to bring them in in a partnership or leadership capacity. I think that the other important thing in leadership is having every single person in the organization, in this case at the bank, understand that they are part of the team. There's no, there are no dispensables. Everyone is indispensable and every role is indispensable and that the entire organization relies upon each and every other colleague. So I started doing something, and I'll tell you, you know, when we first had five people, we had 25, we had 50, 100, up to about 150, I essentially knew everybody's story. You know, I couldn't have told you everything about them. I don't know, didn't remember everyone had, but I more or less knew everyone's story. And then after 150, I wasn't able to do that anymore, I realized. And I think that's the natural, there is a natural number that that's about, that sociologists say that can be part of your, social psychologists say can be part of your standard reliable network. And as we got to 250, 350, I recognized I needed to do something that would keep me in touch with everyone. And so I started calling everyone on their birthday. And so even today, we have 1,500 employees. I call every single person on their birthday. So at least I have some touch point to every colleague here. And I started doing it, and I didn't know how, you know, how it would become. So it would become, at a certain point, it would actually become a thing. It would consume time. But I think it's important, at least for me personally, it's my indicator, and it's one of the only ways I know how to do to make sure that everybody knows that I think that everyone here is important. And even though we're a $50 billion bank, if you are the new teller in New Rochelle, you're important because you're the face of the bank. And whether people are going to be happy or not happy with Signature Bank depends upon you. So that may have been a longer answer uh, to your question, but uh, it's something I think a lot about. And I think a lot about how to do that, how to show and model and mirror leadership every day. That's a great answer. And some of the practices you put in place, I mean, obviously your success speaks to how your employees feel working there because, you know, they're all working towards the same goal. There's a lot of buy-in and, and of course your growth has reflected that. It's, it's funny. I imagine you've had some interesting birthday conversations calling somebody up and they're like, you know, hi, Marge, Scott Shea. And they're like, what, the Scott Jay, like, what can I do for you? There's got to have been some entertaining instances that have come out of those hundreds, I'm sure, of phone calls. 
Well, the first time I started doing it, a few people told me the first time as I was calling people, they would like the first few people thought I was calling to fire them. (laughs) No, why would I be calling you on your birthday to fire you? (laughs) And I was like, no. And then I realized how much I really needed to do this because, you know, I wanted to have a touch point with everyone. And now it's, you know, it's no longer urban legend here. I call everybody and I've been calling them for enough years that I've had people actually tell me, well, I was going to take off today, but I thought I'd come in. (laughs) So I got your call. And that happens. The other thing that ended up being a really a blessing of this. So in 2008 and 2009, during the heart of the financial crisis, I was still calling everybody on their birthday, of course. But it ended up being, for me, a daily survey, a random daily survey, so it just depended on when their birthday was, of the temperature of every employee, every colleague. You know, what are you thinking? What are you seeing? I'd answer questions. I actually took more time in those days to talk to people than, you know, it wasn't a perfunctory call. I really wanted to know what people were hearing, feeling, thinking, hearing from clients walking in the door. And it ended up being, I learned a lot. And I also think that people really liked hearing from me during those relatively worrisome days for the country. Yeah, that's so incredible. It's such a kind of guerrilla way of taking the temperature of the people that are really the boots on the ground of your organization and just seeing what morale looks like and just really what everyone's feeling from what they're seeing, not only you know within your organization, but from the people that are coming in and interacting with your bank. One thing that you said, and you've been an example of this and everything you've said over the past few minutes is this authenticity. And something you said earlier was when you met up with Joe and John, you tried to find people that knew things that you didn't know. And you said, you know, if you can't identify what you don't know, you've already lost, right? And I think for a lot of people, that might be difficult because your ego gets in the way. You feel like you want to do everything. I know a lot of entrepreneurs kind of really have a hard time handing over the keys, so to speak. How do you go about looking at, you know, I, these three things need to be done. And I know that I do number one really well. How do you go about analyzing, you know, do I find someone who knows two and three really well, or is two worth me learning two? Like, where do you sort of look at something and say, I'm not going to learn that. I need to find somebody to come in here who's an expert in that. And that's going to ultimately make the company stronger versus when you look at something and you were like, that mildly piques my interest. Maybe I should take the time to learn that and do it myself. Is there some sort of threshold where you kind of relinquish that control and say, it's not my wheelhouse or, you know, versus you kind of saying, well, I can learn that. And that's something I'd like to learn and do. Well, there's two things. First, it's, you know, how long would it take to master something for me to learn our information technology area? know, I'd have to check out, you know, see in three years to learn what you need to know. On the other hand, I have to have an idea of the overall architecture of our IT environment. But that's an easy one because it's so far out of my wheelhouse that I'm never going to be able to think that I could, comp- you know, I could you know, get into the weeds on that. On the other hand, there's also bandwidth. You know, you can only do so many things well. And I'm a big believer in focus. So, you know, some of the things we got to focus on bringing clients in, our bank has to focus on credit. It has to focus on asset liability management. So I essentially focused on those areas in a major way. 
They were all critical and they all required a lot of time. You know, I don't want to say there's never friction between partners on who should be doing what. But if you really have the organization and the, the company in mind, you know, there's no, you should work those out. I had a, one of my mentors over time, Dan Carney, many years ago when I was at Solomon Brothers, put a, he had us all have a Lucite, it was a saying, his saying on, in a Lucite ball on our desks that said, there's no limit to how far any team can soar, comma, if no one cares who gets the credit. I love and, that. Uh, and so, you know, you have to work that out. The other thing is, and I would say this, is that Joe, John, and I, we might have disagreed on things. We should do what, what other people should do, you know, but we always resolved those in a closed door. And then when we emerged from the room, it's complete unanimity to the organization. And you wouldn't know who thought what. I mean, I will tell you, it's happened where I thought one way and someone else thought the other or vice versa. And when you went out, you wouldn't know from who was the proponent of what we were doing, who thought what. But that's so important too, especially when you're trying to accomplish something like what you all were doing. I mean, you and Joe and John, at least, you know, to the outside world presenting this united front and, and the fact that no one could tell who was against or for a certain topic definitely shows that you guys sold it well. I'm, I'm curious too, I was looking through some of the past interviews you've done and something that kind of grabbed my eye is your philosophy of continuing emergency. What does that mean? Well, you know, I don't, I, that was when we started the bank. <laughs> we had to recognize, and I mean, I did for my personal life as well, that starting anything is like a continuing emergency. It's like a constant fire. You know, it's like being a firefighter and having fires constantly happening. You just had a, you know, you could barely put your head on the pillow and you'd have to get out and put out another fire. And, you know, I've said that to folks is that if you're not willing to give that sort of devotion for some period of time, and it's indeed years, then it's better not to do it. You have to be prepared for your startup to be a continuing emergency. This one was. Look, it wasn't bad either. That's not a complaint and that's not a disappointment. But starting up a company is not nine to five. And if you want to be able to go to a regular Canasta game or, you know, a regular have a regular softball league, it's really, really hard. And, you know, you have to put your priorities straight, which is your family as well and your personal health. And you're not going to, you've got to be prepared not to do too much else for a good long while. Mm. I mean, I didn't, <laughs> I will tell you that I've written two books. When we were starting the bank, I was not thinking about writing any books. Let me put it that way. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued 
at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Really good insight, Scott. I want to come back and drill down a little bit more into something that you touched on a minute ago, which is the importance of focus. It seems like that's such a critical piece of being successful, being an entrepreneur, and yet it's so easy to fall prey to shiny object syndrome or end up having a dozen opportunities in front of you and wanting to pursue all of them and then and ultimately failing and, and pursuing none of them or you know half baking a bunch of them how do you think about making tough choices between competing opportunities that all seem to be really exciting or compelling well now you're getting a little bit and i cuz i think you can't really divorce those decisions particularly when they affect your personal life from your spiritual and personal meaning aspect of your identity. So for me, I really take time every day to pray. And for some, it's meditation. For some, it's other things. But for me, I have this view that when you pray, you're having a dialogue with the Almighty who knows everything about you. And therefore, you can't use self-deception to hide from the truth. It's as though you're having a conversation with an all-knowing power and there's such a bright light on you and on yourself that, you know, sometimes you actually cringe or from taking that harsh, that clearer look on yourself. But if you do have that time where you are radically truthful with yourself, because you're in an environment where you think that that's what you, you have no choice. It helps you make decisions. Is doing what I want to do, is this venture the right thing for me? Is changing jobs the right thing for me? Am I taking too much time away from my family or for trying to meet someone and start a family? Is this the right geographic area for me? What am I doing? Am I being asked in my business to do things in my business life that I think are not ethical? ethical? Is this my passion? See, I think when we're born, that's an act of total grace, and that's a great day. And then the other great day in our life, which hopefully continues many times, is when we figure out why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. And, you know, that gives you your sense of purpose. When you can figure out, okay, what am I doing on this planet? What difference am I going to make in whatever small way? You know, I think that helps you set your priorities. And it doesn't mean you should go and volunteer 
in sub-Saharan Africa to work you know, with deeply impoverished people. It may mean you should do something in your personal life that you're not doing. It may mean that you need to change or adapt your priorities. And I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer that the only time you're truly happy is when you figure out how to harmonize your day, what you're doing with why you feel you are here on this planet. Great advice. I love the focus on radical truthfulness. And, and that's a really interesting mental hack to essentially clear away all the self-delusion that's stopping you from really seeing the situation and yourself really clearly. You brought up a point that we haven't gotten into yet, but is a huge part of your life today and, and you've written and spoken tremendously about, which is how spirituality and religion intersect with all of this. Obviously, you've written several books about that, and this is a, a hard turn from what we were just talking about, but I, it's, it's such an important topic. One of the things that I found really interesting was the discussion that you had in your recent book, In Good Faith, around the problem of evil. And that's something that I've always thought about a lot, struggled with, found to be a really linchpin question for me personally around spirituality. How do you think about the problem of evil and how do we solve that or how do we think about it in a way that we can really integrate holistically? Well, you went straight to the core question. You know, in writing my book, In Good Faith, I spoke to a lot of believers and non-believers. And in the end, I find that for believers, the hardest question is, why is there evil in the world? And that's the one question that believers really grapple with and struggle with. And I've given book tour. I have to say, when I was on book tour, you know, and, and going to various cities and having events in great measure, Almost always, there would be someone who would raise their hand in the Q&A period and say, why, you know, I had a brother-in-law, I had a sister-in-law, I, I had, you know, who something terrible happened to her, became ill. So in my family, I am the son of a Holocaust survivor. So my father was a 14-year-old in Svexna, Lithuania, when the Nazis came, and they murdered his father. His mother had already died in childbirth with his brother. They murdered his brother, too. They murdered another brother. They murdered his aunts, his uncles, his cousins. I mean, my closest relative, because of that, was someone who happened to be away. It was a second cousin once removed, other than my father. That was his closest relative, really. And... He was deported for slave labor. Then he spent three months in Auschwitz. He was fortunately, I've used that in quotes, removed from Auschwitz and moved to another work camp. And then when he was liberated from Dachau, he was less than 70 pounds. He weighed less than 70 pounds. And he probably would have been dead in days, hours, certainly not more than weeks at the rate it was going. And he had the good fortune to be liberated by the American forces. My father's a great American patriot for his life from nursed him back to health. And he ended up settling in Chicago where he was able to marry and have a son, me. So my father had this very, I don't want to call it, but a particular relationship with belief in God and good and evil in that he was sure 
that there was a God because he knew too many miracles had happened that got him through the concentration camps. I mean, if a glass were sitting on one side of the table as opposed to the other side of the table, he would have been dead. If the smallest, if he would have been one step forward or behind in line, he would have been dead. I mean, I, we could have the whole podcast talking just about that. So I'm over summarizing here, but you get what I mean. So he recognized or he believed with certainty that God had somehow gotten him through and brought him to Chicago. At the same token, he was pretty angry with God because at the same time, his father had been murdered in front of him. I mean, again, all of his family had been wiped out, wiped out primarily before they even left Svexner. Few made it to the concentration camps or to get it, but really wiped out. So he had, and I talk about this in great detail in, in the book, is that he had a view that evil could exist. There was a lot of human evil in the world. I mean, the Nazis and their willing accessories made the decision to kill people, made the decision to use science and technology to kill people very, very efficiently. Murder people. Kill is, is too nice a term. Murder people. And I think one thing, and I write about this in the book, I mean, there's a, one of the books of the Bible is the book of Esther. And as you may, some of your listeners may recall, when the Jews of Shushan or, and the whole, all of Persia are threatened with extermination, Mordechai appeals to Esther, sends him a note and sends her a note and says, you've got to go to the king. And she says, no, it's risky to go to the king. He hasn't called for me in 30 days. She could not want me, and then I'd be executed. And Mordecai says to her, you know, you may have been put in this very, very place for just this reason. And then she gets it, and she says, yes, fast for three days. I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to do the best that I can do. So I think that it goes down to there's a lot of human evil in the world. But we can mitigate that. I mean, you know, before the Holocaust, there were Hitler at first didn't think he was going to kill the Jews. He thought they would all leave and go other places. But nobody took them in and nobody took in the Roma. Nobody took in a whole host of other people who Hitler murdered as well. Had countries and had people been merciful, you know, God would have been merciful. But if we're not merciful... If we don't take the responsibility, if we don't figure out that we're here to help other people, then it's not that God causes the evil, but God allows it to happen. That's more or less was the philosophy of my father and the philosophy I adapt. We have the ability to mitigate evil big time. The question is, are we going to do it? Are we going to use our resources? And again, you don't need to necessarily volunteer to work in sub-Saharan Africa. You can donate money. You can work very hard, make money, help people, help people in your day-to-day -day life. And I think that that spreads big time. And I think when we do the right thing, we get a divine win to our back. I think that's a really interesting perspective. And for me, especially the question of free will in many ways can address the component of human evil. The real sticking point or the one that I always reflect on is 
reconciling the existence of natural evil, right? Disasters and disease and so forth. Does that fit into the same model or how do you think about that? Yep. Well, that's in a way a harder question. I mean, why isn't every volcano like that volcano in that exploded in Iceland, which had a lot of ash, grounded flights, but nobody died? You know, why can't everything be just like that where natural disasters are mild? No, you know, Hurricane Katrina's, no Superstorm Sandy's where people are killed, no tsunamis. and. The question there is, I think that, and this gets to something we spoke about briefly beforehand, which is science in the Bible. I think that the Bible makes it clear that God put into place a natural order. And if one of our 10 to the 28th power atoms in our body didn't misfire, you know, our trillions and trillions of cells in our body didn't occasionally misfire, then we would recognize that this world was all fixed, that there was a God. There is a God. And the problem with that is that, and this goes to your free will question, is that if every time you did something wrong, a lightning bolt came out and either shocked you or killed you or just was right beside you and you, you recognize that if you don't do what God wants, you're going to be electrocuted by this lightning bolt, then you wouldn't have free will. We would all be automatons. There would be nothing special or interesting about this world because we'd all just do good people and bad people would actually behave identically because there would be no choice. And so I think it is radically critical that God be hidden to some degree. And that's what enables us to have the space to have free will. I'm saying a lot in a few sentences. I hope I'm conveying that. You know, you're getting it. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. That's a great perspective and one that I wish we could explore more deeply because we could have such a lengthy conversation about this topic, but I know we're starting to run out of time. For somebody who's listened to our conversation and is really curious about implementing something that we've talked about in, in some form or fashion, what would be one action step that you would give them to start putting something we've talked about today in practice? It could be a business thing. It could be a philosophical activity. What would you challenge our listeners to take action on to put into practice what we've talked about today? So two things. Number one, I would start living by the golden rule as Hillel formulated it. Don't do unto someone else what you wouldn't want done unto you. The rest is commentary. Go learn it. If you take that modest depiction of the golden rule, it will change your life. It will protect you against self-deification, and it will protect you against being the victims of other people who self-deify. And so live by the golden rule. If you wouldn't want it done unto you, don't do it to somebody else. And the world will be transformed by that. And the second thing I would say, and this is a little more self-serving, but if people are interested in hearing more, the other action I would say is go to scottshay.com, S-H-A-Y. I have a whole bunch of interviews, podcasts, writings that I've, where I've written from everything about uh, personal ethics, the ethics of what's going on in the Hong Kong protests 
climate change, a whole bunch of things that people can easily access. It's all downloadable. I have a newsletter that's growing as well that I started a few months ago. And the best thing of all would be to read In Good Faith, which is my book available everywhere at quality bookstores and also at Amazon and basically any place that sells books. You can get it on Audible. It's coming out in paperback in a couple of months, Kindle, however you'd like to do it. And I will say this too. I get After people read the book, I get a lot of emails. There's a contact sheet on the website, and I make an effort to answer all emails. But I do say this. I do get a good chunk of, and I'm getting them recently, of chapter-length questions. If you want me to respond, please write me a couple of paragraph email, and I will get back to you. But if it's the size of a chapter, it's just hard to do. So I'm available. I encourage people to read in good faith, look at my website. It's all there. It's really all there. Well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. And one more time, what is the URL that listeners can find you and all of your work at? Scott Shea, S-C-O-T-T-S-H-A-Y dot com. Well, Scott, thank you again. A fascinating conversation. So much more we could have explored. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story and sharing your wisdom. Matt and Austin, it has been a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, Scott. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.